It's no secret that consumers are starting to feel a pinch. With the aftermath of the pandemic, soaring fuel prices and a looming cost of living crisis, it's no wonder that shopping sprees aren't exactly top of mind right now. Times are tough and competition is harder than ever. But that doesn't mean the opportunities aren't there. Brands just need to be more mindful of the value they're offering. Every pound, every euro, every dollar our customer spends is really valuable. And it's easy to think, of course, they should be spending it with us, but they have so much choice, so much choice. That choice is global. E-commerce has no boundaries. It doesn't understand geography. So we have, as e-commerce managers, to think quite humbly about the fact that that is a hard end dollar or pound or euro and for them to be spending it with us we need to really give them incredible added value because they have such choice. This is Beyond Retail, the show that helps businesses make sense of the emerging trends and technological developments within the ever-changing retail and hospitality industry. I'm your host Marie Keyworth and in our final episode of the series we'll be examining the growth of platforms and how their success will impact the industry as a whole. We'll discuss how marketplaces are democratizing retail. We'll explore the role software platforms are playing in powering business growth. And we'll examine how embedded finance is bringing better, faster services to businesses and consumers alike. One platform we'll all be familiar with is the e-commerce marketplace. Love them or loathe them, they've become a staple of 21st century shopping. And with Amazon, eBay, Shopify, and many more taking the world by storm, you'll be hard-pressed to find a consumer that doesn't interact with some form of marketplace. Oh, uh, eBay and Etsy, I use both of them. It's good because they kind of have everything, so you can kind of just search and pretty much you'll be able to find out what it is that you're after. It's nice being able to put money into independent like businesses' pockets, which is nice. Marketplaces offer consumers more choice and greater convenience. And they offer small businesses the opportunity to reach customers. But they're also a useful outlet for established businesses that already have existing channels. So now a uh, major marketplace we use is eBay. I think that's an outlet store, so it's usually stuff that's end of line or to be returned. It's just used as an outlet to get rid of slow-moving and obsolescent stock. I think they're important for all businesses. Um, they definitely give the consumer uh, another option and I think it's also it's good for even major retailers to have somewhere to offload stuff that's probably not accessible to high street retailers anymore. Marketplaces have brought the power of selling to anyone with an internet connection and though strategy and budgets might differ the tools remain largely the same making marketplaces a great leveller putting big brands and boutiques on an even footing. And here to talk more about the democratisation of e-commerce is Sunday Times columnist, e-commerce entrepreneur and chair of the British Association of Women Entrepreneurs, Gillian Crawford. I think the first thing to say really is that e-commerce is still in its infancy. I mean, this is still a very, very new industry. The way e-commerce has developed, particularly in the UK over the last two um, decades, it's been an incredible growth trajectory. And it's difficult to imagine an industry which has developed at such a rate. So, for example, you know, Google uh, was only founded in 1998. Marks and Spencers did not develop an e-commerce site until the mid-2000s. So, I mean, that is really very new. And if you think about any other industry, 
and what it was like, any other great sort of industrial or technological development, and what the first 20 years looked like versus the rest of that period, I think we can see that this is an incredible um, industry and the growth and the potential for it is massive. It's easy to forget that e-commerce is still relatively young, but given the rate at which it's been growing and how it's become interwoven into our everyday lives, it's no wonder that remembering a time before Amazon or eBay is difficult. But despite its infancy, e-commerce has proven resilient, and the technology has helped brands survive recessions, even bringing them through a pandemic, although not without some changes along the way. What we saw in the pandemic was that it was brilliant for disruptor brands who, who were quick on their feet, who were able to get in there fast, did a very good job of grabbing a bit of market share from some of the big brands. You know, if you were a big brand, your time scales weren't quite as nimble as some of the smaller brands who were maybe able to, to move about with things like packaging. We saw there was a big shortage of, of cardboard, for example. There were issues to do with quite a lot of different components. So we had a kind of perfect storm of things happening. And having said that, one of the major, major winners was Amazon. Amazon got it right, right from the start. They were incredible and they made it clear that they were going to put their customer right at the heart of everything they did. They put pressure on the third-party brands that sell on Amazon and they just made sure that the consumer was getting the product, getting it quickly and they really put the onus on the supplier to really up their game. So we saw them as one of the major winners. By keeping customers at the heart of their experience... Businesses like Amazon reinforced to shoppers that they were valued, which, during a time of national crisis, meant a lot to many. And while delivering great products on time is one way of creating a great experience, it's not the only way. I think keeping that dialogue going with the customer is clear. There are obviously all sorts of technological wins, but I think the really important things are not technological. I think the really important things are to do with integrity and authenticity and tone of voice and really how you communicate with your customer. And the customer is becoming incredibly savvy. I mean, they are asking questions of brands a lot more. They are expecting to have that dialogue with their online brands that they want to show that kind of loyalty to. It's going to be sector dependent and it's going to be product dependent. I mean, if you're selling a commoditized item on on Amazon. I mean, if you're selling post-it notes or pens or something like that, this is not going to apply. But if you're selling something where you are expecting to have a decent lifetime customer value and you're expecting to have an ongoing relationship, I think we will see customers actually pushing brands to up their game through the questions they, they ask. So I think transparency is absolutely everything. So the days of selling purely on cost are over, otherwise it's just a pure race to the bottom. I think you have to give added value to your customers. And the way of doing that, I think, is through engaging them. I think we're seeing the rise of smaller, more intimate brands who are able to take their customers behind the scenes. I think the consumer post-pandemic is looking for that experience, looking for that sense of connection. And we've obviously seen the rise of TikTok as being a very important thing within the e-commerce market. So there are lots of new ways now of taking customers on a journey through the brands and behind the scenes and giving them more depth and more, more information, really. With the help of marketplaces, great e-commerce experiences are accessible by businesses of any size. And the pandemic gave rise to a host of smaller scale sellers capitalising on connection, quality and transparency, which saw their businesses boom 
proving that e-commerce is for everyone. E-commerce is one of the most flexible, low-risk, low-barriers-to-entry business models there are. And I'm very interested in trying to close the gender enterprise gap. I think if we had women setting up businesses, women-led businesses at the same rate as we have male-led businesses, it would add a phenomenal amount to the economy. And I think e-commerce is absolutely the key model for doing that because all the barriers to entry with e-commerce are knowledge-based, they're not capital-based. So all the things that we know about women's business ownership can be overcome with e-commerce. And this isn't just about women, it's about other groups of people who might not have access to capital or access to all the things that we know have helped male-owned businesses really grow and thrive. So if you look really sort of at the issues that women's entrepreneurship sort of face. It's lower levels of capitalism. It's a lack of access to finance. It's the propensity of women-owned businesses to be set up from the home. It's the issues around childcare and flexible working. It's lower levels of full-time employees in women's businesses. It's the concentration of women's enterprise in traditionally female sectors. And e-commerce is really fantastic because you can do it from the kitchen table with the kids around your ankles, looking after elderly parents. You can do it part-time, you can do it while you're holding down a full-time job, and you can build it gradually. You don't even need a website to do it. You can do this on platforms. I'm reliably told that there are a dozen women in the Glasgow area who are doing over a million on eBay. Women are good at fitting these kind of things into their lives, and e-commerce really works with that. So with a little bit of training and a lot of imagination, e-commerce has the potential to boost businesses, regardless of size or owner demographic. And of course, marketplaces have a key role to play. Another type of platform playing an important part in getting small businesses off the ground is social media platforms, as Gillian explains. I mean, I've got a great example of one of our members who... She's a handbag designer. And in her previous life, she was a chief operating officer of a technology company. So she, you know, she had a high powered job, but she could never find the right handbag. So the story goes, and she took a course with Mulberry. She learned how to make handbags and she started developing her own handbags. Now she went into the pandemic having really sold these bags to lawyers, accountants, costing 500, 600 pounds. And it was a bag in every boardroom. So she went into the pandemic where nobody needed a handbag and she had to find a new way of selling them. And she did that very cleverly by adapting a number of things at once. So she set up a Facebook group that group very quickly took off. Her key members of the group were wanting to connect with other people who bought her bags and they started taking photos of the bags and uploading them. And effectively, the group became a sales engine for the brand. At the same time, she set up a club. So she had a VIP club with a subscription model, which was... Um, quite radical in that she gave a, a bag away. So there was a complimentary bag for every quarter. And then you had a, mi a minimum spend that you had to reach to get the free bag. And that really helped to boost sales. But then she also went down the celebrity route. So a chance encounter with Anthea Turner, remember her, is still someone who performs well on Instagram. And she's a woman in that space that mirrored her customers. So Anthea did three or four videos for her which she was able to use to sell on Facebook. And her brand took off and became a seven-figure brand over, over lockdown simply because of these techniques. Now, you know, the pandemic has boosted her sales of her bags enormously at a time when nobody needed 
one handbag, let alone 10 handbags. I just think it's a very good example of a female-led business which has used a mixture of technology and psychology to completely pivot the business and change the messaging, the marketing and who she was selling to. I mean, I think that's just a brilliant example of how to pivot if you're a small brand during a pandemic and you have a product which is not an obvious one. With marketplaces lowering the barrier to entry, e-commerce looks set to become more and more democratised. But in the face of new economic crisis, how can e-commerce businesses of any size ensure their ongoing success? As we come out of this pandemic, people are starting to panic. We're seeing a contraction in the economy generally. We've got a huge loss of confidence in consumer spending because of the cost of living crisis, the war in Ukraine. We're seeing all this play in. We, you know, Consumer confidence is down. Inflation is up. What is really important about inflation is that the model is different. The model is not being entirely driven by consumer spending. It's being driven by scarcity and supply issues. So what we're concerned about is that the normal levers... Of fiscal policy, you know, raising interest rates to dull down consumer spending isn't going to work in inflation this time because inflation is not being driven by consumer spending. But given all of that, and given the fact that we are seeing a dip in sales, we have to really hold our nerve as e-commerce managers and as e-commerce brands and ride through the storm. We need to make sure that we're in the very best health. And we are using this time to optimise our product pages because if you look at the data and you see how often your customer visits your site, how long they spend on your site, it's probably not a very long time and it's probably not very many pages. So every page they visit has to work much, much harder to keep them on that website. So if you look at a website like um, Adidas, for example, you've got this incredibly rich product page. You want to show them that, you want to make it look absolutely fabulous, but then you want to show them maybe 10 other things that are on the website that they didn't know they might want so that if they reject the thing that they're seeing, they don't bounce back off. So we're using the time to really enrich our product pages to kind of up our game in lots of different ways. And I, you know, I like the fact that it's making us rethink, it's making us up our game. Every pound, every euro, every dollar our customer spends is really valuable. And it's easy to think, of course, they should be spending it with us, but they have so much choice, so much choice. E-commerce has no boundaries. It doesn't understand geography. So we have, as e-commerce managers, to think quite humbly about the fact that that is a hard end, dollar or pound or euro, and For them to be spending it with us, we need to really give them incredible added value because they have such choice. Although they're the most visible, marketplaces aren't the only platforms out there powering commerce. In the back end are other platforms which are streamlining processes to enable business growth and deliver better customer experiences. These are software as a service platforms. Epos Now is one such platform And here to tell us more about this type of business and the role it plays in supporting other businesses is Chief Product Officer Nathan Gill. EPOS now is really um, the operating system for small and medium-sized merchants to run their retail and hospitality and service businesses. It's a point-of-sale software solution that allows customers to manage their products, their supply chain, their customers, their payments, their marketing, their financial aspects of of their business is really everything that they need to run a merchant business. Our customers tend to do anywhere from 100,000 to 10 million in annual turnover. 
So for us, it's really providing a lot of flexibility because no two businesses are alike. And um, we need to make sure that the corner cafe, uh, which is different from the bike shop, which is different from a multi-location franchise, has all the tools they need to efficiently run their business. Epos now practically serves every function a business could ask for. And with so much power in a single platform, you'd be forgiven for thinking that this kind of system was the reserve of big brands. However, the technology isn't exclusive to high street names and MNCs. It's available to almost everyone. But providing software to such a broad swathe of customers is not without its challenges. Because we have such a diverse customer base, all these customers have different needs. A nail salon needs are different from a hair salon, are different from a mobile food truck, are different from a retail hardware store, right? And our job is to make sure that we give them the software to run their business as efficiently as they can. And so that requires a lot of complexity as it pertains to providing all of that flexibility to all of these customers. And, you know, you take that diversity and you apply the geographic diversity in operating, you know, these 70 different countries where we have customers. And, you know, you can see that it, from a pure product perspective, there's a lot of different variables that you need to manage. But that's kind of what we do every day is figure out how to take what's kind of a complex matrix and make it really simple so that our customers don't have to think about that. They use the platform and it just works. It works for their business type. It works for their geography. And it works for their customers, which is arguably the most important thing at the end of the day. And it's the geographic diversity that can really make things difficult for any business. Because as they grow and branch out into new territories, new regulations come into play. And it's down to technology partners, like EPOS Now, to make sure everything runs in a compliant way. So how much of an issue is compliance? We have to be compliant, right? And especially in Europe, there's a lot of new fiscalization that's getting rolled out. And in many respects, EPOS now and other companies in the space are really helping, I would say, customers to make sure that they are fiscally compliant so that they don't have to think about that stuff. They don't have to think about, you know, when there are fiscal changes or tax changes or that sort of thing. The software just updates itself automatically. And, you know, through the integrations that we have with a lot of our accounting software partners, all the reconciliation between a customer sale and any associated taxes are automatically populated within the accounting software. And so at the end of the year or whatever frequency they're filing their taxes, it's very simple for their accountant to complete that with the touch of a button without a lot of back and forth reconciliation. By shouldering the burden of compliance, platforms can help smooth the way for businesses of all sizes. But built-in regulatory compliance isn't the only service offered by platforms. Payments are central to every business, but many lack the knowledge or resources to ensure they have the best setup. This is where platforms can really help. First and foremost, it's the stuff we're doing already today, which is making it really easy to accept all different payment forms from our merchants' customers and ensure the settlement and payout of those funds happens quickly and easily with full transparency. And then furthermore, to make sure that their employees are are receiving funds as quickly as possible and being able to utilize those funds. Once we get beyond sort of employees, the next thing that we're thinking about is on the supplier side. We want to make sure that it's really easy for 
suppliers to ship inventory and for them to get paid without a lot of manual overhead of merchants having to specifically go out and do bill pay for suppliers and that sort of thing. We think there's a good opportunity to embed that all within the platform and again, make that supplier and payments experience pretty invisible for both parties and automate the experience for both parties. And then I think finally on the consumer side, there's a good opportunity to embed additional finance options for consumers who are purchasing goods and services from these merchants uh, with flexible payment terms so that perhaps giving them the ability to pay over time, which is something they can opt into directly at point of sale. Embedding payment services into a business's existing platform takes the headache out of managing separate contracts and integrations. It also helps to speed up money flows and provide better experiences to the end user. By removing friction and helping operations run more smoothly, it's no wonder that platforms like EPOS Now are growing so fast. But where does Nathan see the future of platforms going? I think fewer players, because I think for the platforms to thrive, they need to achieve scale. If you don't achieve scale, then the economics just don't work, right? The economics of a platform mean that the platform is investing heavily so that the platform can give access of all of that technology down to individual customers at a much lower cost. And if you don't have scale, the economics of that just don't really work. So I think scale is a requirement and inherent with that means that there is ultimately consolidation over time. But I think there's also like a certain amount of interdependency among different platforms that in some cases do different things. And I think we'll see a continued sort of integration. Like I think about all of our app store partners and in many cases, these are like really good complementary cloud technology providers that provide an aspect of a service that is different than ours. And together we create a really great solution for all these diverse merchants. And so I think that the consolidation is one piece, but the integration of platforms is another piece that I think we'll see continue. So scale and collaboration are the name of the game. But there's another innovation that's been steadily gaining momentum and promises to disrupt not just the commercial but financial landscape as well. And that's embedded finance. So how can this benefit platform users? We want them to be able to focus on the things they can do to grow their business and let the financial aspects of that just sort of take care of itself. We started that with launching payments as really an embedded part of our point-of-sale software to great success. And our customers have largely told us that having a payment solution that's very integrated with the point-of-sale software has been really a, a big step change for their business. And so as we think about embedded finance, it goes beyond just providing a payment solution, but really providing a full banking solution as well. Because our software is really the operating system that these merchants use to run their business. We already know a lot about these merchants' businesses, and we can make much more informed credit decisions than a traditional financial institution can, and we can provide real-time access to funds that a lot of these banks can't. With embedded finance, we can provide access to those funds literally in the exact same day. We can provide them with customized real-time access to capital loans. We can provide them debit card products so that they can have an instant access to those funds to spend on their everyday operating expenses. We can provide them with debit cards for their employees 
so that they can have instant access to their wages without having to wait. Nathan is talking about bringing financial products into the EPOS Now platform so users don't have to rely on traditional banks any longer. This is an incredibly powerful offering, which will help power business growth whilst challenging long-term financial monopolies. No wonder it's a hot topic at the moment. I think having that open system as a business would be incredibly valuable. Cash flow for us is really tight as we're growing, so having some kind of short-term cash flow solution so that we can buy in bulk, get better deals, would definitely be a huge benefit to us as a business here. Businesses of all sizes stand to benefit from embedded finance. So what do these benefits look like in practice? Here to explain more is Sophie Gibault, co-founder and chief commercial and growth officer at Fiat Republic and co-author of Embedded Finance, when payments become an experience. So embedded finance is really giving the ability to brand and tech companies to offer financial services, including payments, uh, lending, banking, at the point of use of their users. So it's really like powerful because it's really enabling you to serve the customers where they need it and when they need it the most without them having to think about it. Accessing bank services from within your e-commerce platform speeds up the money flow. But what other benefits does embedded finance offer? Clients were taking like days, if not weeks, to open bank accounts to get started, to do business. That just doesn't work. They were asked for business plan about uh, like their, their shop coming up. And those guys, they are not into doing business plans and trying to uh, create like full free years cash flows projections to open a bank account to just start selling what they are building. So let's say embedded finance providers are like brand and tech companies, they actually understand deep down the business and how they work. And like this predictability enables them to be much more competitive in terms of services, but also much more relevant, specifically when it comes to access to um, to loans and, uh, and financing, because they do understand the risks they are taking and they are really able to price accordingly, but also provide the service that is needed to actually enable the merchant to get access to capital when, when they need it to grow. This deep integration and understanding of the brands they partner with means that platforms can offer financial products such as loans almost instantly. This makes the process of securing capital seamless and allows brands to grow and scale without worrying about cash flow. The experience is better because you are talking to some people that actually know your business platforms. They they have been working with hundreds, thousands, if not millions of you. So they are actually able to guide you along the way and to give you much more relevant experience and advice than would um, like banking people. There are a few stories around Grab as well, where they say that they provided a loan for a restaurant to hire a couple more employees. And like, it's not something that is so easy to demonstrate to a bank that is not sitting on the data, right? I mean, the restaurant owner shares their increases in, um, uh, in revenues and stuff like that. I mean, at the end of the day, they are not finance specialists, right? So, or relying on a platform like Grab that actually has people that is managing data on a daily basis that is really able to get those insights better than you would present yourself. 
So to some extent, like they are actually the one making the negotiation for you because they are like, okay, like we can provide this pricing because the risk is actually quite low and makes so much sense because they will be able to hire two more people, which in the end we will benefit so much because we will make X uh, hundred deliveries more every day. Embedded finance is really helping to oil the wheels of commerce by providing businesses with the financial services they need when they need them. But what's in it for the platforms that are offering it? I have read actually a few studies and what is really funny is that you would think, great, cross-selling, more revenues. And it's clear that it's the case, like many more revenues, right? Like grab half of their uh, their revenues is financial services. So that's where um, we, we see that like just in four years time, like financial services have become like such a big part of their business model. But beside the financial elements, when you talk to executive, it's not about that. It's about convenience and stickiness of their users and providing a better service. So making more money is never in, the, in what they mentioned first on the reason why they would launch financial services. It just happens and it happens to become like a very large portion of their revenues. But it's about convenience. It's about making sure that their customers of like on commerce can purchase. So like they are not like leaving because they need to try to get a loan or something with a bank. So it's really convenience, customer experience, stickiness, customer loyalty. And uh, revenues is a side effect, but it's a major side effect. But they often don't launch that because of additional revenues. So it's not just about the financial advantages. This modern solution is actually a rising star in good, old-fashioned customer loyalty. So with its growing popularity, what does Sophie see in the future for embedded finance? It's going to be everywhere. Absolutely no doubt about it. Like you have embedded finance kind of already. When you uh, order something on Alexa, it's embedded finance, right? BNPL, like has been also embedded finance. So I think we're early on, but I think it's everywhere. The future is already here. I mean, I guess you have seen Amazon Go or Amazon Fresh, um, the supermarket where you enter and you get everything you want and you don't queue and you get out and you have paid. That's how it's going to be, right? Like uh, it's going to be everywhere. I have the conviction that we we won't go back and the future is, um, is seamless payments. Embedded finance, it seems, is here to stay. Not only that, but it looks set to grow, becoming an integral part of the commerce landscape and spilling over into the customer experience through buy now, pay later options. In the last few years, Retail has seen some huge advances in digital transformation, unified commerce, data strategy, payment platforms, and much, much more. And while these innovations are helping to bring the sector further into the 21st century, the tenets of promoting loyalty, providing exemplary customer service, and making physical locations an experience to remember are still critical. But what we've learned throughout this season is that for retailers to succeed, they can't simply focus on innovation over experience or vice versa. Brands need to strike a balance between the two. We've heard how to remain competitive, brands need to consider their digital as well as their physical offerings 
and ensure that no matter whether customers are interacting in-store or online, the experiences remain the same. We've learned why customer loyalty is about so much more than rewards points or free gifts, but more about brands' attitudes towards their corporate social responsibility and their efforts in making the world a better place. Our guests have also helped us understand the importance of physical stores and the critical role our high streets play in both retail and community. And we've learned why data is more important than ever, and that there are more data points, such as payment data, for brands to turn to, to gain valuable insights. But most importantly, we've discovered that success doesn't depend on adopting every single innovation that comes by, but instead by adopting the solutions that make sense for your brand and your customer. You've been listening to Beyond Retail. If you want to find out more about the topics discussed on today's episode, visit agn.com or follow the link in the show notes. And a big thank you to our contributors, Nathan Gill, Gillian Crawford, and Sophie Gibbeau. Beyond Retail is a production of Lower Street Media in collaboration with Agion, with production support by Elizabeth Amos and Erin McIndoe-Sprule. And our sound editor is Alex Bennett. I'm your host, Marie Keyworth. <laughs>